0: As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street tied outside to the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, What are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest heaven. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at evening, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the twelve disciples. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you uh, for this day that we get to celebrate Palm Sunday. As we call it, the triumphant entry. Lord, we ask that you would be uh, the center of this service today. It's, it's a lot of familiarity because we celebrate this every year uh, along with Easter, along with Good Friday, Lord. This, this week is very familiar to many of us. But Lord, I ask that you would renew it in our hearts and in our minds, that we would learn something new from you, Lord, that we would be reminded of something that we need to see. And Lord, I ask that you would bless Pastor Doug as he comes and shares with us. Lord, that we would be able to apply what he has uh, studied and what he has uh, had laid on his heart by your Holy Spirit, Lord. Lord, that we may hear it and apply it to our lives this week. Lord, I ask you, go with us this morning as we enter into your word. Lord, guide us and teach us. In your name we pray. Amen.
1: We find ourselves this morning captured by a number of things. First of all, all of you that are here this morning, this is not your first time, nor we trust if God would tell you, it won't be your last time to be in church on what is called Palm Sunday. The calendar hanging on our wall, as I'm sure the calendar hanging on your walls at home, reminds you that this is a special kind of day. And I I find out that as the seasons go on, this being my 10th Easter season here, some of you have been here longer than I have, and you have had to sit through sermons concerning what is called the triumphal entry. Others are not so long here, and this may very well be your introduction, but I find it a difficulty because of familiarity. Familiarity. We've got all of the information. Pastor, what is it that you could give to me? What is it that you could expound from this pulpit that that would even give me a little bit of excitement of the reason I got up this morning and came to church? Or are you just going to waste my time on things that I've heard before? Uh, That's the challenge. It's sort of just the same way as it is at at Christmas time. What do you say? What is it that you can even present that would at least cause individuals to capture, maybe for just a moment, capture a sense that they never saw before in the scriptures? Familiarity can even cause us to uh, fall asleep at the wheel, if you will, in, in Bible study. The other danger is creativity. Creativity. Creativity is not something that I'm overly inept at. I, I can't dress up as a, a prophet or anything like that. That's just out of my realm. I, I, I don't enjoy that. I like to stay in my, in my lane, if you will. But sometimes when pastors come on to this particular day and days to follow... They will try their best to interject into a text something creatively. Maybe they would even begin to give a, give a message on Palm Sunday that has to deal with, well, let's just consider the donkey for a while, shall we? Well, what good is that? Getting into a mind of a donkey, an animal that doesn't have one. What? That, that leaves us nowhere. That leaves us high and dry. We, 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 we gain nothing in spiritualness of trying to understand this passage as we look at the life of the donkey. And yet creativity can lead us away from the intent of the passage. No, what we need to do is we need to come to the more familiar passages of Scripture with a sense of investigation. A sense of is is this all that I know or is there something else here that maybe I've never considered before? And one individual says we we need to come as even in a sense of agnosticism, and I and he explained what he meant. He said he's not saying that we disregard everything about knowing about God, we can never know anything about God. No, we come at it as an investigation. What's the truth? What is here? And so that is my challenge this morning. The challenge of investigation. Hopefully to, to whet your biblical appetite. And Now, Mark chapter 11 is not the only passage that deals with this part of the life of Jesus. Especially when it comes as we focus on the last week of his earthly life. It's also recorded for us in Matthew chapter 21, then you can go to Luke chapter 19 and John chapter 12, and then again here in Mark chapter 11. It's one of the few places in scripture where all of the gospel writers comment on it. Now you may be asking yourself, at least I trust you will, well why did we choose Mark chapter 11? Well, it's because of this. The the gospel of Mark from a biblical historical situation was the very first gospel that was written. And Matthew and Mark and John, they had this at their disposal and they did investigation. They wanted to know, well, maybe we should talk to some of the people that were there. And maybe we should even garner in of ourselves some of the feelings and some of the senses that we had. And what does this all mean? Well, just like in real estate, the three things of real estate are location, location, location. But in biblical study, it's context, context, context. I I don't want to begin here in chapter 11. I want us to go back to chapter 10. And in fact, if we would pick it up at verse 32, we're setting the context as to, if you will, this is happening prior to this, and then we're going to look at something that happens just like 24 hours afterwards. And it puts it all in context so that maybe, just maybe, you will leave today with something encouraging instead of saying to yourself, that guy did nothing for me this morning we trust that we'll be able to accomplish something this morning. Notice if you will in verse 32 of chapter 10, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished. And but those who followed were afraid. Now take those two words just at a, at a quick glance, if we will. What would cause the disciples to be astonished? What would even cause the others who followed Jesus? He, he had an entourage in, in this particular passage that they were afraid. Afraid of what? What was it that was causing these feelings? What was it that was setting them back, if you will, and wondering, what is this all about? Well, if you go prior to verse 32, there's an event that gets their attention. A rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Well, you know that story. You've heard sermons, I'm sure, on that before. And then Jesus, after that confrontation with that young man, turns to his disciples, and he starts to explain the situation so that maybe they themselves would come to a deeper understanding of this whole thing called salvation. Because the disciples asked Jesus, who then can be saved? Jesus said it's difficult for a rich man. And it's so difficult that he compares him to a camel. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to come and, if you will, trust Jesus Christ and the disciples. Well, then who can be saved? How is it that we understand this thing? And and then Jesus begins to, again, point them to the fact that with man, that which is impossible, but with God, nothing is impossible, nothing. Then you kind of wonder if they're walking along, the disciples are talking to one another and they're saying, what was all of this about? And then in fact, they even came to Jesus and said, well, well, but we left our family. We, we did all of this to follow you. And then Jesus says to them, yes, and you're going to be rewarded for that. And so we get to this passage, chapter 10, verse 32. And the disciples are astonished and the followers are afraid. And then Jesus basically takes a hammer and hits them in the head when he says, if you'll notice, he, at verse, uh, as we go down to verse 33, see, we are going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and he will rise after three days. Wow. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus commented on this. In fact, in all of your good Bibles, you have a heading which says the third time Jesus mentions this. But they, they didn't get it. John's gospel tells us very clearly in chapter 19 that they didn't understand. They were bewildered. They didn't grasp what Jesus was talking about, let alone going to Jerusalem to die. What are you talking about, Jesus? We're we're here, we're following you. You're the one who has the words of life, John or or Peter said one time. We have no other place to go. And you're talking about dying and leaving us here? That, That just can't happen. And the others that are following are afraid. Are we chasing after a ghost? Is what Jesus has been saying all of this time? Is it really real, or or is He going to leave us high and dry like a preacher does sometimes on Sunday morning? What is the hope? And then to clarify, it appears that next, that James and John, they come to Jesus. They they muster up enough energy to want to ask Jesus for positions of authority in the kingdom. Now, when you come to your kingdom, Jesus, why don't you let one of us sit on your right and the other sit on the left? We'll be in control of things. You just sit there. We'll take care of it. And Jesus says, guys, you got no clue. Are you going to be able to be baptized with my baptism? He's speaking there of his death. And they said, sure, why not? And they had no idea what they were talking about. And the other disciples, they got all flustered up. They got fired up. They wanted to have a pillow party. You know, the kind that you put the pillowcase over the person's head and you start beating them to death. That's what they wanted to do. And then Jesus said, wait a minute, wait a minute, you got the wrong idea. You have asked for a position. But let me give you some instruction. And notice what it says in verse 44. Let me pick it up at verse 43. Jesus says, but it's not so among you. Guys, you don't act like this. Gentile kings Lord it over them, people. You are not to do that. Notice what he says. But on the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Again, he highlights what he just previously told them. If you, if you want greatness in the kingdom, then this is what you have to do. No wonder they didn't get it. They're thinking earthly and Jesus is talking heavenly. How many times have we fought with that same thing? We see activities on this earth and we wonder, God, are you really in control or is someone else running the show? We, we miss out, we don't understand. We have this conscience, if you will, that tells us that once you become a believer, everything's supposed to be fine. But it doesn't work that way. Well, we don't stop there because now they meet this wonderful individual by the name of Bartimaeus. He's a blind man. And if you're looking to stop at a passage and and contemplate it, look at this individual. For he's the first one who recognizes that Jesus is the son of God. He refers it a little bit differently. He said, have mercy on me, son of David. I'm blind. I got no place to go. If it wasn't for people throwing me a little bit of a pence once in a while, I would starve to death. I got nobody to lead me around. And the disciples are seeing him and hearing him. Be quiet, you shh, be quiet. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, shh, be quiet. And he yells even louder. And Jesus has a passion and compassion on him and heals him. And he gets up and he doesn't run away. He says, I'm going where you're going. I'm going with you, Jesus. I'm joining this crowd. For what you've done for me. This is what I want to do for you. Well, that gives us the introduction. Now they're coming to Bethage and, and Bethany. But, but I don't want us to stop there. I want us to go over a little bit and go to chapter 11 and go to verse 15. This is the day after. This is the day after Jesus goes in the temple. And he sees what's going on. This isn't the first time that he's had this reaction. At the beginning, at the onset of Jesus' ministry, he did the exact same thing as he did here. He kicked people out, turned over tables. In fact, even got to the point when he would even see someone carrying some goods. He said, hey, get that out of here. That doesn't belong here. Get that out of here. You're not allowed to bring that in here because my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer and you're making it a den of thieves. And then they come and say, by what authority do you do this? And yet we're caught in a conundrum. We like the previous Jesus. We've painted pictures of him. He's he's loving. He's sort of cozy. He's holy. He's righteous. Well, I don't know if cozy is a good word to put with Jesus, but you understand what I'm saying. But here he's different. You see, we like Jesus on the donkey. We we, we like that kind of Jesus. But when it comes to really seeing who he really is, we, we, we wrestle with that. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, can I at least offer you this? We, the only view that we can fall upon about who Jesus is, is what the scriptures tells us, not our own personal makeup. This is who he is. Yes, he is loving. He is righteous. He is gentle. But he also doesn't mess around. He cleans house when he has to. That's who he is. And now all of that, we come to chapter 11, verse 1. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you, and as soon as you enter it, you will find a colt or a donkey tied there. Loosen it and bring it to me, and oh, by the way, it's one that has never been written. Now, without uh, drawing a dark cloud, I'm not gonna enter the realm of creativity, but I want to at least draw something out of here. I'm, I'm not gonna get in the mind of the donkey, but I wonder what the disciples were saying as they were going. Maybe they were commenting to one another, yes, Jesus is coming, riding in, in the the city of Jerusalem. Maybe this is the time he's going to establish his kingdom. James, John, maybe they were the two just saying, now we get to sit on the right and the left. Maybe they got all of that running through their mind. And they come and they find this donkey. It's never been ridden. Now, Jesus gave them specific instructions that not only are they to loose it and bring it to him, but if anybody asks you, why are you doing that? Stop doing that. You're not not stealing my donkey. All he had to say was, the Lord needs them. And he'll let it go. Now, how many sermons have you heard That maybe, just maybe, this might point to the, if you will, the wonder and the glory of the omnipotence of God. But have you maybe stopped and considered that this isn't the first time Jesus has been in Jerusalem? Maybe this individual that owns this non-ridden donkey, he and Jesus had a conversation saying that I'm going to come back and I'm going to use your donkey. I, I don't know. We, we dare not interject anything into the passage that is not clearly stated. All we do know is that two disciples went and got this donkey. That had never been ridden. And they brought it back to Jesus. And and, and the disciples, of course, there's no no saddle on a donkey. You don't saddle a donkey. I don't know a lot about donkeys. I don't know a lot about horses, and that's okay. But I do know this, that you sit on a horse or a donkey that's never been ridden before, you're going to face two things. Either that creature is going to try to get you off any way that they can, Or they're going to be that obstinate that they're not going to move. Now, I've been told, though I've never done it, but I've been told that if you go to the Grand Canyon, you you can get on a a donkey, a mule, I guess, and, and ride it down the path to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. But what I've been told is this, is those mules, those donkeys are so used to it that you don't even have to hold on to the reins. They know where they're going. There's no way I would get on a donkey that had never been ridden before and go down to Grand Canyon. That isn't going to happen. And here's this donkey has never been ridden before. And Jesus says, go get it. Bring it here. And they put their cloaks, their outside cloaks on it for Jesus to sit on. Jesus sat on that donkey. Now again, without crossing over to the, to the point of darkness, but consider that there's something here for us to look at. Jesus sitting on an unridden donkey you kind of wonder of a song that comes to mind. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, thou son of God and man the son. The waves and the wind have ceased. Lazarus has been raised and Jesus sits on an unridden donkey and it obeys its master. I wonder, is this how it's going to be in the millennial kingdom that is described for us in the book of Isaiah, where a lamb will lay down next to a lion and and not have any concern of its life, where a child can reach into a hole and grab all of a snake. Why a child would wanna do that, I have no idea and not be bitten where well, there is no more pain no more suffering is this a picture of maybe what it would be like so so calm that an unridden donkey recognizes its creator and says let's go and he rides in to this city of jerusalem And we come to the portion of what they are saying. Down here in verses, (coughs) excuse me, 9 and 10. To fully understand this, we need to go back to the book of Psalms. Psalm 118. Please turn there. Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is the last of what is called the Hallel Psalms. From chapter, from 113 to 118. These would be psalms that would have been sung antiphonally. Someone saying the first line and people then would repeat it back and forth, back and forth. And it would be sung and would be said during times of celebration. Specifically now in this celebration of the Passover. But there's more to this psalm I believe that you know than what is recorded for us in Mark chapter 11. Familiarity of some of the words that we're about to read will draw you to this psalm. Let's pick up the text, shall we? In verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone well, that, should, that is something that you should be familiar with. Peter wrote about that. Specifically, when Peter's writing, telling us that we are a royal priesthood. We belong to a, a different kind, if you will, of family. And Peter introduces that whole passage by, by highlighting the fact that Jesus is the cheap cornerstone. And the church is built upon that. And, and you part of the church. You're, you're the royal priesthood. And then there's another familiar phrase that in verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, we've known that before. We've heard that before. And in fact, that's almost a phrase that we should say every day. This is a day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, even if it is not as nice and sunny as it is this morning. Because God has made it. But you'll notice as we get down to verse 25, you may have the words, Lord, save us. In the Hebrew, that word is Hosanna. It's the word that was shouted about In the text of Mark chapter 11. And it says, Lord, save us. Please, Lord, grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God and has given us light. These are familiar words to these people in Jerusalem as they see Jesus coming riding in on a donkey. And they begin to exclaim, Hosanna, save us. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they begin to praise the Lord because they even say now, the kingdom of David is going to be established here. Hosanna. So that brings me to this point. Sometimes the headings that are written above the, the phrases that we look at in the text can be a little misleading. You have the same phrase that I do, a triumphal entry. I don't know if it's so much a triumph at all. What makes it a triumph? I think that's the question we need to deal with in our own minds and our hearts. Jesus is not taken and established as a king of the kingdom. Obviously, we could say, well, he wouldn't allow himself to be because first, as he said earlier, that he had to be crucified. Well, we, we got that. But remember, the disciples and those who were with him didn't understand that. Were they only looking for the fact that maybe now, just maybe now, we can get out from this crushing rule of Rome and have it our own way? That particular, if you're back there in in, in Mark chapter 11, you recognize the fact that nothing is said about Jesus being Messiah. There's nothing here. There's no proclamation of him in any way. Not like Bartholomew, not not like Bartholomew's. The phrase that he said, son of David, that's that's a messianic phrase. He's declaring that this one who healed me is the Messiah, And it appears everybody else missed it. They were looking again for earthly peace. But Jesus was coming to bring them spiritual peace. Peace from heaven, if you will. And so here we are in this very familiar passage, wondering what it is. What what does this all mean, brother? What, What does it matter well, I'm here to tell you it matters very, very much. And these words are not just penned here for our, ent- our entertainment. They're here to remind us that God had a plan. And it all began way back about three years, three and a half years before this. It all began 33 years before this. When in Luke's gospel chapter two, it says, the peace of God now is on earth. In fact, it began a few thousand years before this, when the Lord talked to Adam and Eve, and he said, the seed of the woman is going to crush the seed of the serpent. Yes, and now we're allowed to see the fulfillment of it. You know what that means dear people? You can trust every single word in this text, the whole Bible, why? Because it speaks of who Jesus is. He is the king. He is the sacrifice for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might become children of God. Yes. Oh, there will be day when it will be a triumphal entry. Can someone help me with an amen? I've read Revelation 19. The king comes. But right now, he enters in as the sacrifice. We see the fickleness of the people here, too. Notice, it, it talks to us when it says, in, in verse 7, let me bring you up back, back to, back to our, our text. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted. It wasn't the whole town. It wasn't the whole city of Jerusalem that was proclaiming this. It was those who went ahead. It was those who followed behind. And remember from chapter 10, verse 32, they were astonished and they were afraid. They had no idea what they were doing. Only for the fact that they were fulfilling Scripture by Saying these words. Whoever went for the donkey. Had no idea what they were doing. They had it in their mind. This is going to be great. But they had no understanding. Of what Zechariah in chapter 9. Verse 9 had to say. Behold your king cometh. Riding on the back of a donkey. They didn't know that. They had no idea. And yet. Yet this chapter ends in a very subtle way. Verse 11, it says, Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. After all of this, Jesus enters the temple. Hey, boys, it's late. Darkness is upon us. We ought to go home. And they left. I don't know if it's so much a triumphal entry as maybe a sacrificial introduction. Jesus was coming to die. He knew that. He told his disciples, he's told us, this is what I will be doing. And the crowds, as fickle as they were, there were those that were shouting praise, and then there were those who were looking to kill him. And these particular cries are going to be drowned out by crucify him, crucify him. Just in a matter, if you will, of five more days. Triumphal entry? I don't know. It's a quaint little saying at the top of 11 verses here in Mark. But I look at it more of an investigation. Let me ask you, have you investigated who Jesus Christ really is? He's... he's, I guarantee you he's more than what you can even begin to imagine. But the most important thing about him is on display for us in this whole coming week of how he is the king. He is the fulfillment of God's plan. He is God and man together. He will die But he's going to rise again. That's what he said for us. In three days, I'm going to rise. Do you know him? Sometimes we can get all excited in a crowd and have no idea what we're cheering. It's almost like playing a game at a party, isn't it? Where someone is given a phrase and they're supposed to memorize it and they're supposed to pass that phrase on to the next person and by the time it gets around, it has, it has nowhere near the same. Don't we do that to Jesus? The only thing that we can even begin to come to understand of who Jesus is is what is written in the text and I'm here to tell you that Jesus is a lover of your soul and he doesn't want any one of you to perish, but to come to repentance. Do you know him? Have you trusted in him alone for your only hope of salvation? Because that's who he is. That's what he came to do. That's what he fulfilled. And now he's waiting for you. May we pray this morning. Heavenly Father, Investigatively I trust that we have gained a little bit deeper understanding of who you are. We're grateful for your gift of Jesus. We don't want to miss him like those of the crowd. We desire to even know him more. But it all begins at the point of the cross and the the empty tomb. Jesus came for the purpose of dying to take upon himself our sin and through his perfect sacrifice, you tell us, O oh Lord God, in your word, that we can have eternal life if only we believe. Oh, I trust that everyone here this morning knows and understands this truth. But if not, if they would have some questions, I ask, O oh God, that they would not leave today without at least asking those questions to either myself or Pastor Steve or one of the elders or deacons of this congregation, that we would be able to show them the scriptures and what you have to say. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for your spirit that brings conviction. Thank you for your spirit that teaches us your word. And we pray this day, that we will remember the glory on who you are, the authority that is yours, the determination that comes from your word that brings us life. And we'll praise you and thank you in your name. Amen. Amen.